0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 97, Psalm 97. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 499, page 499. Uh, I want to say that uh, I really appreciate Jesse preaching for me uh, last week. I got sick last week and so was not able to uh, be here last Sunday and preach, so really grateful for him stepping in, and we are so blessed to have uh, men in our church who are able on a moment's notice uh, to faithfully preach God's Word, and so uh, very grateful for that. We are in a series in the Psalms, and this Sunday will mark the last Sunday in our series in the Psalms, and uh, we are looking at Psalm 97 this morning. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, I'll read the Psalm in its entirety, and then we'll consider uh, what the Lord has to say to us from His Word, okay? So Psalm 97, this is the Word of the Lord. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth." The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods." O oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of His saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O oh, you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful for Your Word and what a privilege it is now to gather together and to take these moments to consider what You have to say to us from Your Word. Lord, as You speak, we pray that we would listen. And Lord, we thank You that by the power of Your Word, You change and transform lives, that You change and transform us, and we pray that You would do that work in these moments. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, Psalm 97 begins with one grand truth that then gives focus and direction to the rest of the psalm. And the truth is announced right away. You see it there in Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. In other words, He is King. He is sovereign. He rules and He reigns. And this means that the God of the Bible exercises absolute authority and absolute power over all His creation. Many years ago, Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist preacher in London in the 18th and 19th century, wrote a devotional entry that became somewhat famous, and the devotion entry is entitled, God's Most Hated Attribute. In that devotional entry, Spurgeon wrote, quote, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne, end of quote. And the reason why we are all naturally inclined... To resist this truth that the Lord reigns is because we want to reign, right? We want to rule. We want to be sovereign and king over our own lives and in our, over our own destinies. Therefore, as Spurgeon states, men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. Well, we've been working through a series in the Psalms, and this section of the Psalms that we've been looking at is known as the Kingship Psalms. And this is the truth that we've seen declared over and over again through these Psalms, that God is King and that He rules and He reigns. And so this this morning, Psalm 97, begins with this great declaration, the Lord reigns. And then the psalmist will flesh out the implications of this truth for four different groups of people. We'll see this morning in our psalm that this truth that the Lord reigns has implications for the earth, it has implications for supernatural beings, it has implications for the Lord Himself, and then it has implications for the righteous. So we're going to work our way through the psalm and we'll see each of these points. So first of all, let's look at verses 1 through 5 and we will see that the Lord reigns, Therefore, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns. Therefore, let the earth rejoice. Look there in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Now notice who's being addressed in these first five verses. You see it there in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. So this is who's being addressed in these first five verses, the earth and the coastlands. Now, the coastlands is actually a term that's commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to those nations that resided around the Mediterranean Sea. And these nations represented to the people of God, to Israel, they represented the nations of the earth. And so in this way, the earth and the many coastlands are parallel to one another. They're synonymous with one another. And then notice as well in verse 4 that the psalmist goes on to mention the world. And he mentions the earth in verse 4. And then in verse 5, he makes another reference to all the earth. And in verse 6, he speaks of all the peoples. So this is who the psalmist has in mind. This is who the, earth, the psalmist is addressing. The earth and the peoples of the earth. The nations and the coastlands. And notice here in the verse, in response to the Lord's reign, what is the earth and what is the many coastlands called to do? Well, you see it there in verse 1. They are called to rejoice and be glad. Let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Now this reminds us actually of Psalm 96, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. In Psalm 96, we saw that the nations are called to worship the Lord. And here in Psalm 97, we see another missionary cry, a missionary call. As the biblical author is calling the nations of the world to rejoice and be glad in the sovereign rule and reign of the God of Israel. But it's interesting because as we see this call for the nations to rejoice and to be glad in the Lord, immediately following that call, the psalmist provides us with an awesome and terrifying description of the Lord. You see it there. In verses two through five, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So, this is a fierce description of the God of Israel. One biblical uh, scholar in reference to what the psalmist writes here, he comments and says, quote, God's awesome weight and splendor disrupt the world's equilibrium. Yahweh is presented as being too much for the world he made, end of quote. Now, where would the psalmist get such an idea of God? Where would the psalmist dis- derive such a description of God? Well, I believe here in the first five verses of Psalm 97 that the psalmist has in mind Mount Sinai. Now some of you, many of you, know what Mount Sinai is a reference to. And let me just kind of explain, maybe for those of us who don't, and just so we can all remember. Remember that God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And after he had delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery, he led them to Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that God met with his people, and in particular met with Moses, and God delivered to Moses the Ten Commandments. Now listen to Moses retelling those events in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19. This is Moses' description of those events. On the morning of the third day, And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So you see this awesome, fierce description of the Lord at Mount Sinai. And I believe what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 97, he's basically giving a poetic description of what happened when God met his people at Sinai. Now, if we think about these verses, though, verse 1 and then verses 2 through 5, and we think about the relationship between the two, you might be saying to yourself, but wait a second, I thought that the psalmist was saying that the nations should rejoice in God, that the, the nations and the peoples of the earth should be glad in God, and then immediately following that call for the nations to rejoice and be glad in God, we have this awesome, terrifying description of the Lord. So which is it? Should we tremble before Him in fear? Or should we rejoice in Him and be glad? And of course the answer is both. Biblical worship is worship in which we tremble before the Lord with rejoicing. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 2 verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. You see, my friends, and this is counterintuitive, we don't think this way naturally, but God has created us to find joy and gladness in His awesome and sovereign rule and reign. This truth is illustrated well in the prideful boasting and joyful humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. The story of King Nebuchadnezzar is found in Daniel, and no one represents the unbelieving nations of the world better than King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, which at that time was the premier superpower in the world, and he worshipped the gods of Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 4, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace. He was looking out over Babylon. And he said out loud as he looked out over Babylon, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so Nebuchadnezzar is boasting, right? I did this. This is what I did. Look at all I've accomplished. And do you remember what happened? The Lord struck Nebuchadnezzar. And he lost his mind. Began to act like a beast. And in Daniel chapter 4 verse 32, this message comes to Nebuchadnezzar. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will. That's kingship, isn't it? That's kingship psalms. Until you know who rules and reigns, until you know who the real king of the universe is, you will wander in fields and eat grass like an ox. In God's grace, after a time, Nebuchadnezzar's mind is restored to him. And do you know how this now humbled king responds? He rejoices and he is glad in the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony is written in Daniel chapter 4 verses 34 to 35. Nebuchadnezzar says, my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven." For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Do you see, my friends, the nations will find joy and gladness in God when they are humbled before him. When they come to see his awesome, majestic, sovereign rule and reign for what it really is. And the same is true for you and me. We will find joy and gladness in God when we are humbled before Him and rejoice in His sovereign rule. Have you been humbled before Him? Do you have a healthy fear of the Lord, a reverence, a respect for Him? Do you rejoice and are you glad in His kingship? The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Second, we see that the Lord reigns, therefore, let the gods of the earth worship. The Lord reigns, therefore, let the gods of the earth worship. Look there in verses six and seven. The psalmist writes The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. So here we see that the psalmist addresses the gods of the nations. And he challenges the false gods to worship Yahweh. And he tells them that they should worship Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, because the heavens and the peoples and even idolaters must yield to Yahweh's sovereign kingship. Notice this. Let me show it to you in the passage. Look there in verse 6. The psalmist writes, The heavens proclaim His righteousness. So creation itself rejoices in the rightness and in the justice of God. And then in verse 6 as well we see, All the people see his glory. Now, this is similar to what we've already read about in verses 1 through 5, where the nations are called to rejoice and to be glad in God's reign. But then I want you to especially notice in verse 7 we see all the worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Now, of course, when the psalmist here speaks of worthless idols, he's speaking of the idols of the nations, the images that they worship. And the nations worship these images, they worship these idols, in hopes that these idols would honor them, would bless them, would show them favor. But here the psalmist insists that as they worship these idols, they will not experience honor and favor and blessing, but rather they will experience shame. In fact, the prophet Isaiah was especially intent to convey this truth. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, Isaiah the prophet writes, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, You are our gods. Or in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 11, Isaiah says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know and they, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall all be put to shame together." So the psalmist is saying here, the psalmist, notice this. First of all, he's speaking to the nations in the coastlands, right? He's saying, worship the Lord. But now the psalmist turns to the gods of the nations, and he says, worship the Lord, all you gods. Worship Yahweh. And he reasons with them. He says, the heavens honor God for who He is. And the peoples of the nations are increasingly coming to see Him and see His glory, and they will more and more in the future. And even idols, your own worshipers, they will not derive honor from worshiping you, but rather ultimately, when they worship you, it will only result in their shame. Therefore, join the heavens, join the nations in worshiping the one true and living God. Now when we read these verses, verses 6 and 7, you might ask yourselves, well, Well, how does this happen? I mean, will false gods, will the idols of the nations worship God? You might even be asking the question, I I thought, wait a second here, I thought that idols were false gods, like they weren't even real. How are they going to worship Yahweh if they're not even real? All those are good questions. We have to understand, first of all, that in one sense, these gods are nothing. These idols are nothing. In fact, the psalmist refers to them here as worthless idols. In other words, they are not gods. They are false gods. But on the other hand, the Bible teaches us that there are demonic, supernatural beings behind these idols that oftentimes act on their behalf. However, these demonic supernatural beings are not real gods. When I was growing up, this might seem like it doesn't connect at all, but I promise it does. When I was growing up, I went through a stage in which I liked to skateboard. And uh, someone came along and they were wearing skateboard clothes and they had a skateboard haircut and um, skateboard shoes and they talked about all the great tricks they knew and how they re, you know everything they could do on a skateboard and then people found out that they really didn't know how to skateboard and they didn't know all these great tricks, then they would call them a poser. Okay. And if you're a skateboarder, that's like the worst thing you could ever be called is a poser. Well these false gods here, this is what's happening. You see, these demonic, supernatural beings, they exist. In that sense, they're real, but they're posers. They pose as false gods. They pose or they pose as real gods, I should say. They pose as real gods, but they're no gods all, at all. They're false gods. But here's the thing, and this is what the psalmist wants us to see. Although they're posing as gods, although they know they're not real gods, they do know who the real God is. This is wonderfully illustrated in an account that's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 5. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines, who are the enemies of God, they steal the ark of God, and they take it back to one of their cities, Ashdod. And they put the ark of God, which is representative of God's presence among His people, they put the ark of God in one of their temples, in the temple of Dagon. And they put the ark in the temple, and that night they go to sleep, And they wake up the next morning, and Dagon, which is a huge idol, is fallen down prostrate before the ark of God. So they pick him up, stand him up again. They go to sleep that night. They go into the temple the next day. Dagon is again fallen before the ark of the Lord, prostrate before the ark. And this time his head and his hands are detached from his body. You see, my friends, even false idols know before whom they are to bow. This is illustrated in the New Testament as well, in Mark chapter 5. On Wednesday nights, we have various Bible studies that are meeting, and I'm attending the discipleship course, and uh, one of the assignments we had was to read Mark chapter 5, and we discussed it in small groups. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes upon a man who has an unclean spirit. And this man who has the unclean spirit, is no one can subdue him because he has these demonic spirits within him. He has unusual strength. They're unable to bind him, even with chains and shackles. And he's constantly crying out and he's cutting himself. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 6, we read, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? You see, this man and the unclean spirit that was within him was out of his mind. He was uncontrollable, but he knew who Jesus was, and he fell down before him. That's why James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 19: You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You see, my friends, there will come a day when everyone, even supernatural demonic beings, will recognize Jesus as Lord. Now, will they do so in such a way that results in salvation and redemption? Will they turn from their sins and trust in Christ and follow Him as Lord? No. They will not bow the knee in in redemption and salvation. Rather, they will bow the knee in judgment. But reluctantly, even reluctantly, they will bow the knee and recognize Christ as Lord. And so the psalmist declares, O gods of the nations, worship Him. Because even reluctant bowing of the knee in judgment, even that is an expression of worship. If you're not a Christian this morning, consider this truth. If even wicked, demonic, supernatural beings will bow the knee to the Lord, will not you Who are created in His image. Whom He loves. Whom He is offering redemption and salvation to through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Worship Him. All you gods. Third. The Lord reigns. Therefore, God's people and God's place rejoice. The Lord reigns, therefore God's people and God's place rejoice. Look there in verses 8 and 9. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So again, the fundamental truth of this psalm is found in verse 1, the Lord reigns, and at this point in the psalm, the psalmist now addresses Yahweh Himself. So He's spoken to the nations, He's spoken to the gods of the nations, and now He turns and addresses Yahweh. And because He's speaking to the Lord Himself, He doesn't issue a command like He did to the nations or to the gods, but rather He makes an observation. And the observation is this. That God's place and God's people rejoice in the Lord because of the Lord's judgments and because the Lord is exalted above all gods. Turn to the text and you'll see this. The psalmist, you see, addresses the Lord in verse 8 because of your judgments, O Lord. And again in verse 9 for you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So it's very clear that he's speaking to the Lord. And then he makes this observation in verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Now, Zion is just another name for Jerusalem, which was considered the city of God. This is where the ark of God and, uh, dwelt, and where the temple of God was, where God promised to especially dwell with His people. So, Jerusalem represents God's place, God's city. And then you see there the reference to the daughters of Judah. Judah was one of the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And the tribe of Judah resided in the southern portion of Israel. Uh, That's actually in Judah was where the city of Jerusalem was located. And so the daughters of Judah is a reference to the women of that tribe who lived in that region. And they represent here in our psalm the people of God. So notice here what the psalmist is saying. God's place, that is Zion, Jerusalem, and God's people, that is the daughters of Judah, who represent God's people, are glad and rejoice in the Lord. And why are they glad? Why are they rejoicing in the Lord in Jerusalem? Because of your judgments, O Lord, the psalmist says in verse 8. Now, when the psalmist speaks of God's judgments, it seems what the psalmist has in mind here is the salvation and deliverance that God brings to His people through judgment. We see this all throughout, in particular, the Old Testament. And the psalmist here might have one event in mind or he might have a number of events in mind. But we we could imagine that the psalmist might have in mind when God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. God's judgment came upon Egypt and his people were delivered and saved. Or the psalmist might have in mind the parting of the Red Sea, right, when the sea was parted, and God's people crossed through, and then Pharaoh and his army sought to pursue after, and the waters were closed in, and judgment came upon Pharaoh and his army, and God's people were saved and delivered. Or he might have in mind when the Canaanites who were in the land of promise were driven out, and the Lord gifted that land to his people. Or the psalmist might have in mind when God conquered the city of, or I'm sorry, the nation of Assyria. Who had defeated his people and taken them into bondage? Or he might have in mind when God destroyed or, or overtook uh, the Babylonian empire, an empire that had oppressed his people for many hundreds of, or for some um, length of time. And so the psalmist here goes on to say, notice this in verses 9 through 10, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And so you see the relationship here between your judgments, O Lord, or the reason we're rejoicing, we're, we're praising you, because you were exalted above all gods. You see, each one of these acts of judgment that brought salvation and deliverance to God's people was a demonstration of God's superior glory and power over the gods of the nations. Whether it was a demonstration of His power over the gods of Egypt, or the gods of Canaan, or the gods of Assyria, or the gods of Babylon, in each one of these instances, God demonstrated His power Over these gods, the gods of the nations, and in doing so, delivered and saved his people. And therefore, his people rejoice. Now, of course, as Christians, when we contemplate God's great judgments and acts of salvation, we immediately think of the cross and the empty tomb. At the cross, God won our salvation through judgment. As the Lord Jesus took upon Himself the judgment that we deserve for our sins so that we might be forgiven and saved. And in the empty tomb we see the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as He is raised from the dead and God defeats our final enemy death so that we through faith in Christ might have eternal life. And do you know that in this greatest act of salvation, in this greatest act of deliverance, God was demonstrating again His power over the demonic, supernatural beings of this world. The Apostle Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses God made alive together with Him." Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. In so doing, Paul says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's speaking of the demonic spiritual beings. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And so how should we respond? How should we respond that God has won our salvation and deliverance through judgment? Well, like Zion and like the daughters of Judah, through faith in Jesus, we are the people of God. And therefore, we should rejoice and be glad. We should rejoice in the judgments and in the salvation and the deliverance of our great God and King. Our mission as a church, as many of you know, is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And this is, in fact, what it means to enjoy the gospel. It means to rejoice and to be glad in His salvation. In particular, in the salvation that He has won for us in Christ. Fourth and finally, the Lord reigns, therefore let the righteous hate evil. "'Rejoice and give thanks. "'The Lord reigns, therefore, let the righteous hate evil, rejoice, and give thanks.'" Look there in verses 10 through 12. "'O you who love the Lord, hate evil. "'He preserves the lives of His saints. "'He delivers them from the hand of the wicked.'" Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. So you see here in these verses that the psalmist now is addressing the righteous. You see it there in verse 10. He says, O you who love the Lord. So he's speaking to those who love the Lord. In verse 12 he says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. So he's speaking to the righteous there. And then you notice as well, he goes on to speak of his saints in verse 10, and the righteous in verse 11, and the upright in heart in verse 11. Now, what is the word that the psalmist has for the righteous? Well, the psalmist declares that because the Lord reigns, the righteous are to hate evil, they are to rejoice, and they are to give thanks. Now, it seems that most of the attention, though, that the psalmist gives here is to this idea, this exhortation to hate evil or to hate sin. And you know, there are some things as Christians that we should hate. It is appropriate, it's healthy for us as Christians to pray, Lord, help me love what you love and help me hate what you hate. And the Lord hates evil. And of course the reason why this is so difficult for us to do is because our hearts have a defect. And because of this defect that we find in our hearts, we are naturally inclined rather than to hate evil and to hate sin, we are naturally inclined to desire and to love what is evil and to love what is sinful. And to make matters worse, we live in a world that is constantly conveying the message to us that the way of life, the way of happiness, the way of satisfaction, the way of joy, the good life, is a life of sin. A life free from the constraints of God. A life free from the ways of His kingdom. And so notice, it seems to me what the psalmist is doing here in these verses Is he seeks to persuade our sinful hearts and to undermine the deceitful, deadly lies of this world and to provide us with three reasons why we can and should hate sin? Notice, he says there in verse 10 the first reason why we can and we should hate sin is because the Lord will keep us. Look at verse 10, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. In other words, the Lord will protect us. The Lord will keep us. You know, fear is often at the root of our sin. Sin tells us that you can't be honest, you can't be kind, you can't forgive. If you do, you'll get trounced. I mean, who's going to take care of you? Therefore, you better lie. You better gossip. You better get revenge or you'll get left behind. And what does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, don't believe that lie. You can hate sin and you can walk in righteousness because the Lord will preserve you. The Lord will keep your life. The second reason the psalmist says that we can and should hate sin is because the Lord will grant us light. The Lord will grant us light. Look there in verse 11, he says, light is sown for the righteous. Now, one commentator defines light here as a guidance for a life that is good and healthy. Another commentator states that light here stands for life and deliverance and blessing. But here's the thing. The world tells us that obedience to God leads to darkness, it leads to depression, it leads to the death of all your ambitions and desires and dreams, that God's way is dreary and it will spoil all your hopes. But that's a lie. The psalmist tells us actually in Psalm one nineteen one oh five, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In actuality it's sin and it's Satan that leads us into dark alleys and down dead end streets. I imagine most of us at some point in our lives have stood at the end of our own path of sin in darkness and in despair, broken hearted and desperate to find a way out. And the scriptures tell us that in fact it's God's word that shines a clear path and enables us to successfully navigate through the temptations and trials of life. In fact, it's Jesus himself who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you want light, if you want life, hate sin and follow Jesus. The third reason the psalmist tells us that we can and we should hate sin is because the Lord will grant us joy. Look there in verse 11. Light is sown for right for the righteous, here it is, and joy for the upright in heart. You see, the power of sin is that it promises us joy. That's what occurred in the Garden of Eden, right? In Genesis, we are told that Adam and Eve saw the fruit and that it was delightful to the eyes. And they took it and ate. You see, Satan was presenting them with a temporary pleasure. But Satan hid from Adam and Eve the devastating end. A life full of toil and pain and conflict And death. And this is one of the reasons why we should hate sin because sin deceives us. It promises us joy, but it results in misery and death. And we can begin to break the power of sin in our lives when we begin to refuse sin's lie that sin leads to joy. In fact, it's when we trust that hating evil does not result in small, unfulfilling, miserable life. And we by faith walk in obedience to the Lord and we love righteousness that we begin to experience the blessings of walking by faith and the blessings of walking in obedience. And then we do what the psalmist tells the righteous here to do. We give thanks and we rejoice in the Lord for those blessings. Because there will come a day when the one who loves the Lord, when the one who walks in righteousness will say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for all the misery, for all the heartache, for all the trouble that I avoided by walking in obedience to your word. Lord, thank you with a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction in my life as I look back on my life and realize that I didn't just spend my life for myself and for me, but rather I spent my life for the good and the sake of others. Lord, thank you for the joy that I now possess knowing that my life was not wasted on trivial pursuits that were temporary and now I have nothing to show for it but rather I gave my life and invested my life in eternal souls and in your kingdom, which will last forever. The righteous will rejoice because they hated evil and they sought to walk by faith in obedience to God's Word. So these are the four implications that we see in our text related to this truth that the Lord reigns. As we've looked at each one of these and we've kind of looked at our psalm in each of its parts and walked through it, I want us now, just as we're closing, to briefly take a step back and look at the psalm as a whole. Because there's a structure, there's a pattern in the psalm that's helpful and informative. You might have already noticed it. The psalmist begins by addressing the peoples of the nations. Then he addresses the gods of the nations. Then he addresses the Lord... And then he addresses the people of the Lord. So the peoples of the nations, the gods of the nations, the Lord, and the people of the Lord. And I wonder as you think about the structure of the psalm in this way, where do you find yourself in the psalm? Do you find yourself in the first half of this psalm? Among those who have yet to trust in the Lord Jesus and bow your knee to Him as King? Are you still worshiping the false gods of this world? Whether it's literally false gods, other gods than the God of the Bible? Or it's other idols like greed or sinful pleasure or power? Or do you find yourself in the second half of the psalm? Among those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, have yielded to Him as King, and you're not perfect, you're sinful, but you hate sin and you're doing battle against your own sin and seeking to walk in submission to His kingship and rejoicing and glad in His mercy and in His grace. Where do you find yourself in this psalm? The Lord reigns. And that truth has implications for every single one of us. Will you bow the knee? Will you submit? Will you rejoice and be glad in the sovereign God of the universe? I hope and pray that each one of us, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, will find Him to be our King and we will rejoice and be glad in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word, and I do ask and pray that in these moments that there might be no thought that is more compelling to us or real than this truth that You reign, that You are God, that You are King. For there is no truth in all the world that has more significance, more weight, more implications upon our own lives. Father, we confess in our own hearts we resist that truth because we want to rule and reign our own lives. Father, forgive us. Help us, Lord, each of us to turn with an appropriate sense of awe and reverence before You and trembling to turn to You, to turn from our sins, to hate evil, and to trust in the Lord Jesus through whom You have won our salvation and deliverance. And I pray that by Your mercy and by the power of Your Spirit that we would follow You as King and as Lord. Lord, convince our dark hearts, persuade our dull minds, Lord, Lord, that following You as King is truly the path to life and rejoicing. And may we walk in it. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.